The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Rona Novik now presents her lecture, Navigating Life in an Uncertain World. Good afternoon, everybody. We are going to talk today about navigating in an uncertain world and how we manage stress and uncertainty. And for those of you who have heard my one or two talks before, I apologize for pieces that are repetitive, but in the field of learning about managing our stress, we always need to hear things more than once anyway. So think of the most recent time you felt stressed, overwhelmed, or out of control. I know it's really hard to think of one of these, right? But does everybody have an example of a time that they felt that? I want you to remember that, because we're going to come back to use your examples in a moment. Because what we're going to do today together is we are going to uncover our stress sources and our stress patterns. Then we're going to consider selected Torah and psychology views on stress and stress management. And then we are going to learn three routes, three avenues we have to address stress. And I'll leave you with one very, we'll learn one very specific technique together. Okay. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, in the worldview, whether you're a psychologist or a rabbi, is stress normal? Is worry and anxiety normal? And I saw a wonderful piece written, I think it was actually written on Chabad.org, about the fact that when we look at the very beginning of creation, we read that there was darkness and there was light. They're combined together. It doesn't just say, or and there was light. First, there has to be darkness. We refer to this combination of darkness and light as one entity, as a day. But a day is nothing if it doesn't have both components. We need both darkness and light. We need, believe it or not, we need stress in our lives. If you have a stress-free life, you're in trouble. Because it basically means you're not breathing anymore. Uh, stress motivates us. Without stress, we would all drive too fast on the highway. Without anxiety or worry, we would engage in dangerous behavior. We would take very high risks. The problem is that none of us know when our stress is getting, we don't know before the fact when our stress is about to become overwhelming. One minute, we're managing, and the next minute, it's too much. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Another very important Jewish source about stress, which I think is just amazing because it so um, tracks with my psychological understanding, there is a pasuk, a line in Proverbs that says, anxiety in the heart of a person causes dejection. The word for dejection is yaschena but a good word will turn it into joy. I can't read my own thing. What does this word, this interesting word, mean? So um, our, our scholars tell us there are three different ways to look at this. One, and, and the three ways actually parallel the three ways that psychologists say to deal with anxiety and to deal with stress. One is, if there's anxiety, suppress it. Minimize it, manage it, make it as little as possible. Suppress it. Another way to understand and translate this term, yaschena, is to say, if there's anxiety, ignore it. Act as if you're not stressed at all. Pretend, no big deal, I'm not bothered. Um, they describe 
the, the example of Yosef in the pit, and we, we read multiple iterations of the fact that the pit had no water in it. Why does it tell us there was no water in it? Well, it doesn't mean that it's totally empty. There may be snakes in it or other scorpions, other items, um, but the technique is to refocus. And it even tells us that Yosef, when he was in this horrible pit, he's been thrown by his brothers, he smells the aroma of a caravan coming that are bringing spices or perfumes. What an unbelievable strength of character to focus in a pit with scorpions and snakes on, hmm, I smell something lovely in the distance coming. The third possible, possible translation of Yashchena is if there's anxiety, talk about it. Sicha, discuss it. Engage in conversation, articulate, think it out. Pirkei Avot teaches us, find yourself a friend. Find yourself someone in your life, a Rebbe, a friend, a, con a, a consultant, somebody who can help you with your problems. So those are some Jewish ideas about stress is necessary. It's part of our life. There are multiple ways to deal with it. We want to look at both the three different ways we experience stress and the three different avenues we have to tackle it. In psychology, it's called the triple response mode. We have three ways that we respond to stress. Physiologically or physically in our body, cognitively in our heads, and behaviorally with how we act and what we do. Yeah, there are handouts for anyone who needs them. Before I talk about the physical responses the, the cognitive responses and the behavioral responses, I just want to share with you a very common theory of stress and why we sometimes become overwhelmed. And I also want to share with you a notion called the stress response curve. Think about a time when you needed to perform well. You were playing on a team and you were the last batter up. You were having guests for a simcha for Shabbos, and you needed to cook something that was going to be yummy. You were performing in a play, and you needed to get your lines right. Did you get some feeling of stress and anxiety in those situations? Yeah, you get a little bit nervous and revved up. Well, if you were lucky, you got enough stress so that it increased your performance. Think about the Olympics that just happened. Athletes who felt enough stress that they were able to rev themselves up, get juiced, I don't mean with steroids, I mean juiced up emotionally and ready to give it their all. But we just recently had two examples of athletes who fell off the stress performance curve, whose stress continued to escalate up and up and up to a point where their performance fell off the cliff. Tennis player, gymnast, who basically said, that's it, that's it, I'm done. I can't perform. The tension and the stress is too much. And many of us can probably think of times in our life when stress contributed to us freezing. And I don't mean how cold it is in this room. I mean freezing up. I mean the stress literally incapacitated us. It was at that such a high level that our performance decreased. The stress performance curve looks a little bit like a mountain. Looks like an upside down U. As stress goes up, so does performance until you get to the top of the mountain. And then if you keep adding stress, performance rapidly falls off. The theory of stress I want to share with you comes, and it relates to this stress performance idea, it actually comes from work on allergy and immunology. How do you explain that someone who's always been able to eat strawberries all of a sudden eats a strawberry and breaks out in a rash or hives? How do we explain it? The barrel theory of allergy says that all of us have our bodies, and let's translate it into stress, all of us have a stress barrel. Let's forget allergies for a minute, it's not an allergy barrel. We've got a stress barrel. And we can keep dumping stressors, my food burned, the stuff I wanted in the store they're out of, my children are giving me worries, financially I've, we can keep pouring things into the barrel, 
and we'll be okay until the barrel is full. And we don't know the barrel's full. We may know we've dumped a lot of stress into that barrel recently, but we don't know how much it is, what level it's at. We never know until it could be the tiniest little drop of stress that causes our barrel to overflow and we become frozen and unable to function. So we obviously want to learn both our own personal uncertainty, we don't know when the barrel's gonna overflow, so it's in our interest to have as many tools and techniques available to keep our stress barrel emptied, to keep it at reasonable levels, to manage when we are adding, and we're constantly adding stressors to our barrel, to manage how we feel about it and how we handle it, and there's uncertainty of stress coming from beyond us. We don't know what's coming in, whether it's pandemic, whether it's our job, whether it's our families, whether it is, please God, our health should all, we should all be well, and we should be able to be together many more times in the near future at JLI and other such gatherings, but we don't know what the future holds. So being prepared to deal with the uncertainty is really important. So, I asked you to remember the last time you felt stressed. What did you feel in your body? What did you experience physically in those moments, whatever your stress was coming from? Anybody want to share what you felt in your body? Call it out. Headache. Chest pounding. Heart beating rapidly. Tightness in your throat. Sweaty palms, sweating. Stomach ache. Okay, it works every single time. I, I said this this morning, Jews tend to be, like Italians, we are gut and cardiac stressors. We tend to have cardiovascular systems, heart uh, symptoms, heart pounding, sweaty palms, I can't catch my breath, my, my pressure is going through the roof and gastric symptoms, agita, the Italians call it, heartburn, we Jews call it, a heartburn, stomach butterflies, stomach ache, et cetera. It tends, by the way, there's a genetic component and a biological component to the way we experience stress. If you ask your mom or dad or siblings, they may have this, a similar system of response to stress as you do. Um, my family could, all, I think everyone's on antacids, you know. Yes. Yes, Germanic, Germanic tend to, and, and British tend to have musculoskeletal. Headaches, neck aches, back aches. It's so interesting because, you know, what's our caricature of Brits and, and, and Germans is kind of, you know, they're stiff and rigid, and that's their symptom, and hot-blooded Italians and Jews, we get the stomach and the cardiac. So yes, there are, there are different cultural um, in, inheritances. Um, but our biology is also impacted by our environment. So I might be someone who, under stress, gets some stomach symptoms, but if I happen to eat the incredibly rich food at the Jewish learning retreat, and I ate to my fill at every meal, the environment is actually going to make it more likely that I'm going to have stress symptoms if I don't police myself at the latest buffet. Don't all watch me at dinner. Um, we, we have to recognize that there are strategies that we can take, that we can use to alter our biology. Even something that seems as physical as blood pressure, we can change that but not in a moment, and not with one, I, I went to one session of yoga, and how come my blood pressure's not down? You know, or I went to one workshop with someone, how come my, you know, my uh, cholesterol levels aren't lower? There are ways to impact our biology, but they're going to take work and time. One, some of the ways we manage the physical are, uh, I wanna say they're simple, but they're not easy. Like, simple, straightforward, sleep. There's so much research. Eight hours is so much better for us than seven or six or five. And someone this morning reminded me, it's not just the hours, it's the quality. 
eight hours of uninterrupted, blissful, wonderful. The beds actually are really nice at the Marriott. Very much enjoying them. Um, but having good quality sleep, um, anyone who's a parent will remember if you, when you were raising young children that I call it baby monitor sleep where you never quite, it's baby monitor and early flight sleep. To me, they're the same. Where you never quite fall into a satisfying sleep because you're just waiting for the alarm to go off or the baby to cry. Um, so we need good sleep, we need good nutrition. And uh, I'm a firm believer, by the way, that the reason that there are so many diets that become popular and so many ways of eating that become popular is because we do not all need the same diet and that each one of us needs to learn our bodies well and learn how you respond to caffeine, how you respond to carbohydrates, how you respond to sugars. There are some, I mean, there are some things we know generally that are healthier and things we know that are not healthy, but not every approach will work for every person. But thinking about your body as an engine that needs fuel, and, and caffeine is not fuel, <laughs> caffeine is just a jolt but it isn't fuel, that you need real energy to get your body going. Exercise is 100% the brain's and the body's natural stress buster. And yet, I'm gonna admit something I hate admitting. I hate it. I hate exercise. I don't like doing it. I don't enjoy it when I do it. I don't feel I don't feel an enormous, oh wow, isn't this great? I got a runner's high. I've never had any exercise high from any exercise I've ever done. But I know that I feel better when I do it. I know that so many things are better. It has to be something that will fit into your life, that will work for you, that will do, but the research suggests even something as little as 20 minutes of moderate exercise three times a week changes your physiology and changes your stress level. And so just getting out, walking more, doing more, being more physically active, and looking for those periods of, can I find 15, 20 minutes and do something, like you said, Rustavar, something you'll do whether it's Zumba or whether it's calisthenics or whether it's running, something you will do. And then we will together learn one of the techniques in my meditation, relaxation, and imagery box. They are very powerful and useful techniques. Again, each one in that box has multiple formats and finding the one that works best for you and that you will do and make a part of your life a skill that you overlearn that becomes natural for you is important if it's going to become a stress buster. To say, again, I, I, I heard about mindfulness, I read a book, it's not working for me. Well, you didn't give it time. You, didn't, you don't learn anything by just reading about it. You have to practice it. Yes. Modaani have said with Kavana. So, uh, the, the, yeah, Asher Yatsar. Um, those, those can be incredibly powerful ways to really focus and really think about things. Okay, what do we know about the cognitive component of stress? Think back to the first, at the beginning I told you, think about a time when you were overwhelmed, think about a time when you felt very stressed, what was on your mind? If you're not, if it's not too private, anyone wanna share, what was the thought? Why did I agree to do this? What have I gotten myself into? My brain is mush. I can't make sense of anything. Other thoughts in stress? What, oh, that's a great one. What if, dot, 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 dot. What if this happens or that happens or this happens? Any other examples? Why do I have to do this? All, what, what, is, what is the same about all of these thoughts, they're all worries. Not one of them, in a time of stress, it's very unusual that in a time of high degree of stress, that what runs through our mind is, I've got this, no biggie, I'm good. And so on the one hand, the natural thought direction we go when we're stressed is the negative, and on the other hand, once we are in that negative place, our stress escalates. And so we have to figure out, how do we break the cycle? We, we know 
that the thoughts that frame an experience change the experience. Think of a piece of artwork. If I hang the Mona Lisa on the wall and it's surrounded by a beautiful antique ornate frame, we see it as the Mona Lisa. If I were to put around it some graffiti art in a frame, it would look unrecognizable. It would change what we think of the picture. In the same way, this is the example I gave in another talk here, if I wake up in the morning with a headache and the thoughts that I wrap around that headache are, there must be something seriously wrong with me. What is that, what if? What if that headache is the sign of something? I'm not getting any younger. And I think my right fingers are starting to twitch a little bit. Headaches on my left side. I read something about this somewhere. It's probably some silent killer. I know it is, so that's probably what it is. And they won't find it if I go to the emergency room, I'm sure of it. What's my day gonna be like? What's my stress level when that is the frame I put around a morning headache? I'm gonna be a wreck all day long. Not only that, but that level of stress causes something called hypervigilance. All day long, I'm gonna be saying, ooh, not only are my right fingers twitching, I think the big toe on my right foot is sore. And did I notice that feeling in my stomach? And oh my gosh, I think I'm walking crooked. And all day long, I'm gonna be looking for evidence to convince me of the horrible nature of my stress. Yes? Yeah, whenever I... 100%, and there are, I believe that there are people in our lives who are stress busters, who are like great go-to people that just calm us down. And, and then there are people in our life who are stress escalators. And we really have to figure out, how do we say, uh, I need a few minutes? By the way, when, when we were raising our children, the shorthand, when my husband would walk in the door at the end of a day, and I had, uh, my stress barrel was totally full and I was gonna lose it with kids, the code was, I need to go to Hawaii. And that my husband knew that at that moment he needs to step in and I would go off somewhere. And our oldest son at one point said, how do you get to Hawaii and back so fast? <laughs> um, but that was a really good way of saying, you know, I need you to step in and take over and I need not to be near these children right now. It's not gonna be good. We don't always have good partners that we can say that to. Imagine the same headache story if I wake up in the morning with the exact same headache and instead I have the following frame. You know, I heard the pollen counts are off the charts. My allergies are acting up. Let me take a Claritin. I'll take some Tylenol. Hopefully it will go away. If not, I'm sure it's allergies. This is the season. It happens. Now I go about my day and my stress level is manageable. I may still be thinking about the headache, the Claritin may not work, but I'm not beset with incredible scenarios of what if. So very often, we may not be able to change the initial event or our initial thought, I have a headache, but we can change the wrapping around it. And we can choose a different what if scenario. We don't have to go to the darkest place. That does take some effort. And it also takes choosing thoughts that our brain will not reject. In the headache example, if I wake up with a headache and I say, oh, goody, a headache, that's a wonderful sign of my health and well-being. I know it's going to be a great day because headache days are just the best. My brain will automatically say, are you crazy? This is not a good substitution or frame around that thought. If, on the other hand, my thought is, you know, it's very likely that it's allergies. Why are you getting yourself all bent out of shape? Wait and see, take some medicine. There's no reason to be upset about it. My brain will accept that alternate way of thinking about it. We may not always choose what we think, but we do have the ability, and this is not a psychological thought only, it's a Jewish thought, we do have the ability to choose which thoughts we give prime real estate in our brain, which thoughts we give time and energy to. 
we make a decision. Am I going to spend a lot of time thinking about X, or am I going to think about Y? We have this concept in prayer when we say, Moda'ani, where's my mind? Where do I want to put my concentration and my thought? We know, um, and I, I said this at another talk today, we know the Jewish concept of kavana and intent. When we pray, we put our mind, focus where we want. I love that my colleague, David Pelkovitz, um, came up with this, this notion that sameach, the Hebrew word for happiness, can be broken up to sam moach, put your brain. Our happiness comes from where we put our brain, or another way to think about it, what we put in our brain. We make a decision what we focus on. We also understand in Jewish thought that we can change our behavior even when our thought isn't ready for it. We can act in a way even when the intent isn't there, when the concentration isn't there, and the thought will follow. So that even though my headache may be telling me, oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible, I can get myself out of bed, get myself dressed, get myself to start doing something else, and I have a much better likelihood of decreasing my stress and dealing with uncertainty if I do that than if I pull the covers over my head and engage in that hypervigilance I talked about where all I can do is focus on the headache. Beyond negative thinking and being proactive in creating the cognitive structures that will be stress-busting rather than stress-inducing, we can think about the power of gratitude the research on the impact of simply writing at the end of each day, the act of actually writing. Someone asked me, a young person asked me in another talk, could I just do it in my phone? Can I write it down? I think so, as long as it's physically written and not just, I'm going to think of three things I'm thankful for. But actually writing down three things each day you're thankful for has been shown to not only increase happiness and well-being, not only decrease stress, but actually decrease the likelihood that you get physically sick, decrease the amount of visits to doctor's offices, increase immunity. It is amazing the power of gratitude and the power of our thinking. By the way, the th your, if you enter an inoculation, it's very appropriate these days, if you go to get an inoculation, this was study was done long before COVID, with positive, optimistic thoughts, you, you will develop better immunity than if you go to that same inoculation with negative thoughts. Amazing. The power of our thinking is really quite extraordinary. So optimism is also a very important, um, a very important characteristic. Um, I learned very early on that I come from a family, and, and Jews, by the way, are, we're very good at pessimism. If you haven't noticed, we tend to be somewhat negative in things that we say. Our humor is very negative. Um, I learned very quickly that I was growing up in a pessimistic family and maybe it was a reaction, but I'm an incredibly optimistic person. I remember going um, to, I, to, out to ice cream with my family, and there was another family in the ice cream store that clearly were, they suffered from some genetic condition that left their limbs contorted. And multiple members of the family clearly had the same condition. I was too young to know what it was, and my mother said, I, 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 it's so sad. It's so terrible. Look, the limbs twisted. I, and I was thinking, look how wonderful. They get to go for ice cream. You know, a whole family sitting together eating ice cream in spite of their handicap. Isn't this amazing? That's the worldview that really helps us have lower levels of stress, to look for the positive, to look for the part of the glass that is half full. And if you tend, like my family does, like many Jews do, to the negative, it really, you have to move yourself to think about, can I find the positive in things? Accepting change as normal and accepting uncertainty as normal. This is hard. I'm teaching a graduate course right now to educational leaders on change and innovation. 
And one of the things I have them do is pick a behavior that they're, a personal behavior that they're going to change. It's been wonderful. My class may have learned absolutely nothing about running schools, but they've learned to become better exercisers, manage their time, eat more healthy, um, finish projects in their house. What's so interesting is that as all of them were asked to reflect on it, one of the hardest things they had to do, the hardest things they all struggled with, was that they couldn't predict what would happen in advance. That in undertaking a new project, a new way of doing something, that they couldn't say with certainty, oh, in a month, I'll be exercising five times a week. They didn't know. And often when they did make predictions, they were wrong. So part of, be, uh, of a mindset that decreases our stress is letting go of the idea that I can predict the future, that I know what's going to come, and just allowing ourselves to live with the uncertainty and the not knowing. Mindfulness is a technique that has gained enormous attention. It is associated with various forms of meditation. But the reason I include it here is that one of the key aspects of mindfulness is being very forgiving of your own thought process. It's sitting in the moment and noticing the thoughts run through your head and just accepting and saying, okay, okay, so the shopping list popped in my head, that's okay. And now I'm feeling particularly cold in this room, it's okay. Now I'm thinking about the glare of the lights, it's okay. Not being punitive or judgmental about our flow of thinking even as we try to, in the moment, get in touch with what is happening in our mind. The opposite of mindfulness, anyone, how many people in the room drive? You've probably had the experience, you're driving on a highway, you get to exit 60 and you say, I don't remember exit 59, 58, 57, how did I get here? That's the opposite of mindfulness. That is when we are on autopilot and we are not at all in touch with our surroundings or our mental processes. Mindfulness is the exact opposite of that. It is knowing every minute what is going through my head and just allowing it to happen. And 90% of our time, we are not mindful. Correct, correct, absolutely. And I, and I believe actually most of us could not be successful in our lives if we were mindful all the time. But the practice of mindfulness and mindful meditation, if you can carve out parts of your day, short, little parts of your day, Schools are doing it now, a lot, are doing five-minute mindfulness exercises with students and find that when they do it, students' behavior, learning, focus, concentration is better for the rest of the day. So you can't do it all day long. You do it in a focused exercise. I want to talk about one particular cognitive challenge in times of uncertainty and stress. And that is the challenge of finding a way to reassure oneself or to reassure the people in our lives, whether they're our children, our spouses, our elderly relatives, our colleagues. I first um, discovered this challenge over 20 years ago when 9-11 happened. I live in New York. Um, and I was working with many first responders in post-traumatic work. I'm a clinical psychologist. And what I found was that their children, whatever age they were, two or 12 or 15, would say, you know, Daddy, you're gonna be home for dinner. Mommy, what time are you coming home tonight? And, and parents froze. And they were saying things to their children, horrible things to their children, like, I have no idea what today holds. I don't know if I'm coming home. Because they knew how many parents didn't. But I very quickly, as a child clinical psychologist, said, you, you can't do this. You can't rob your children of, you can't stop doing your really important role as a parent, which is to provide reassurance. And I began thinking about what is the art and science, what is the language of reassurance that we need for ourselves and for those that we love, even in times of great trauma, stress, and uncertainty. 
And at that time, I started percolating in my head with a children's book, which took all of these years to, after lots of no's from publishers, finally finding a home at Berman House's Apples and Honey Press, and I actually have the book here, uh, was published, you can't make this up, on April Fool's Day in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Mommy, can you stop the rain? What does reassurance need to be successful? We need, um, first, to validate. We can't deny the negative, uncertain, challenging, or stressful reality. Anytime somebody comes to you and says, oh my gosh, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster. My simcha is going to be a disaster. My presentation is going to be a disaster. What happens if you tell that person, no, it's not. It's going to be fine. They reject it or they escalate their complaint because they don't feel heard. You didn't get me. So if you say, no, it's going to be fine, they say, fine. You think it's going to be fine? Have you met my mother-in-law? Do you know what's going to happen? They, you force them to actually become more stressed because you didn't hear their first, and you didn't communicate that I hear where you're coming from. And so you have to start out with, yeah, I hear you. It's going to be tough. I know. And sometimes, by the way, validation is not the same as agreement. Maybe it's a little bit of agreement to say it's going to be tough, but it's validation if I say, I hear that you are really worried about this. Boy, I can see that you are, this is, drive, this is throwing you for a loop. That's not agreeing with you that it's horrible. That's agreeing with your feeling. It's validating where you're coming from. And without that, we can't move forward with the people in our lives. We can't provide reassurance if we first don't help them feel heard. And when, when you know, you're the one seeking reassurance, you may have to prompt someone by saying, I know you want to fix it and make it better, but first, just listen to how upset I am. I really think this is terrible. And then, if you get validation, then you may be able to better listen to their suggestions. Then, we need to provide reassurance in a way that's reasonable and not Pollyannish. We can't say, oh, bad things don't happen. COVID-19 is nothing. It doesn't happen in our world. Nobody we know has ever been sick. Because again, the brain will reject that. And people will say, I'm not taking reassurance from this person. They don't get it. We, we need to realize that often to provide reassurance, we need to do it more than once. And especially with young children, we need to do it over and over and over again. And we need to do it knowing the person we're speaking to. It's much easier to be reassuring to a person you know. The person you know who you, you know they need to hear X or Y in order to feel better. This is just two pages from the book. It just gives you an example of what reassurance sounds like. The little girl asks, Mommy, can you stop the rain? And Daddy and Mommy answer, no, we cannot stop the rain or quiet the wind or turn off the lightning or shush the thunder, or stop the rain. We can't uh, send away the storm. But we can stay close and keep you cozy and warm until the last raindrop falls. That's what reassurance is. And that's unbelievably powerful in times of uncertainty when we can focus on what we can guarantee, what we do know. Every parent can tell their child, you know, more than anything in the world, I will do anything to be home for dinner tonight. I will try my darndest because I love every minute we get to spend together. That's a truth that is incredibly reassuring to children. And in the face of our current uncertainty, there's a lot of room for us reassuring each other um, and reassuring ourselves. It's interesting, I mentioned the uh, Orthodox Union just published a study of four Jewish communities, including Atlanta, North Dallas, my own community of West Hempstead, New York, and the Scarsdale New Rochelle, which was actually one of the first um, epicenters of COVID. And what they found was how much communal support and being part of a Jewish community, as well as spirituality, served as reassuring agents through this incredible crisis. Let me turn to behaviors and managing stress. 
One of the things that happens in times of stress is we run around a little bit like a chicken without a head and we forget self-care. We forget that really important announcement. When you get on the plane, we tune out the safety announcement, but there's a really important part of every plane ride safety announcement. If the plane should, exhibit a sudden, should experience a sudden lack of air cabin pressure, masks will drop from above. If you are traveling with people who need assistance, affix your mask first before helping others. We need, in times of stress, to remember that if we do not take care of ourselves, we are not going to be able to take care of anyone else. And so we need to think about self-care. And part of that is thinking about stress zaps my energy, so what fuels me? What gives me strength? What invigorates me? For some people, again, not me, might be exercise. Uh, for me, music and nature. There are certain songs, certain music I play, I am transported. I am, give me Pavarotti's um, Nessun Dorma. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm just in awe. It's just extraordinary. I can play it, and my husband makes fun of me sometimes because I will play the same thing 35 times, blasting loud. Um, it just fuels me. It gives me strength. A plant in my backyard, visiting it, seeing it grow, gives me strength. You have to figure out what fuels you, and you have to find time and space for your passions. If it's something creative, it's, if it's writing, if it's painting, if it's reading, if it is visiting somebody, if it's helping uh, doing Bikur and visiting people who are sick, you have to find what it is that's going to fuel you, and you also have to find time for fun and for pleasure and for laughter. Laughter is curative. It is a stress buster. And I am uh, incredibly blessed to be married for many, many years to a man who makes me laugh all the time. Um, and it has been really a pandemic uh, in empowerment, because I don't know what I would do without um, all of that in, in these months of isolation and, and stress. We also need to think about delegation. And uh, women in particular were not very good at this. The research suggests that even as we complain about we wish we had more help, we are not so good about stepping aside and letting others do the work, whether it's work for pay or work at home. Uh, and so we all have to work on ourselves and say, if I'm very stressed because I have this and this and this and this, are there ways that I can cultivate my delegation behavior so that it's not always me? If we look at the big picture of charting our course forward in an uncertain world and managing stress. I think that we see very clearly that the secular worldview is, has much less to offer than the Torah worldview. The secular world, Brene Brown describes the hustle for worthiness. You know, I'm only as important or valued as what I've done, how much I've earned, what I've created, versus the Torah view that says we are, from the moment we're born till our last second on earth, created and exist, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. And that means that every moment we breathe, we have value. Intrinsically, inherently, we don't have to hustle for worthiness. Oh my gosh, five minutes. We are worthy. The, the secular view deals with the grass is greener and constant comparisons. The Jewish worldview says God judges each one of us as an individual. There are numerous mafarshim and sources on this that each one of us are judged independently on our own behaviors. The secular world works on a 24-7, 365-day-a-year clock. We get a reset button. We get manucha, rest, rejuvenation every week. 
When I was in graduate school, there was a killer statistics course. There was a study group that met every single day of the week. I missed Friday nights, and much of the year I missed Saturday nights. And my colleagues would say, we don't know how you are getting through statistics in graduate school with this Shabbat thing of yours. And my response to them was, I don't know how you get through graduate school and statistics without this Shabbat thing. Um, Achad Ha'am is famous for saying, more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. So I, I want to sum it up, but I really want to do what I, what I promised, which is I want to relax you. Anybody mind? Do you mind being a little relaxed? I want to give you one technique for relaxation, and we're just going to do a little piece of it, because ideally we'd be in the spa laying on nice chaise lounges, and the, you know there'd be nice little calm lighting. But we're going to do, I want to give you an example of how we can train our bodies to relax. All you need is to be where you are. You can keep your eyes open or closed, whatever you feel more comfortable. And we're going to do a form of relaxation, just a little piece that's called progressive muscle relaxation. I like this one because it's easy to learn and easy to teach. And you can actually see if people are doing it and give them feedback. So I'm going to close my eyes. I suggest that you do, but you don't have to. And I want you to focus on the sound of my voice and on concentrating on only one part of your body as I discuss it. We're going to put our attention, we're going to focus our attention on your right hand and your right arm only. I want you to put your right arm at your side and form a fist with your right hand. Squeeze it tightly. Squeeze it. And as you're squeezing it, push your arm down towards the floor. As if you're leaning down toward the floor, as you do that, you should feel tension in your muscles of your fingers, all the way to your wrist, up your elbow, up to your shoulder. Hold that tension. Hold it one more moment. It's very uncomfortable, but now very slowly, very slowly begin to open your fist. Very slowly, let your hand find its resting position. Let your arm come back to its normal position. You may rest it in your lap. You may have some tingling feelings in your fingers. They may feel heavy or warm, that's natural. Notice the difference between fingers that are relaxed, an arm that is relaxed, versus one that is tensed. We're gonna repeat that now, starting with your right hand fingers. Try to keep your left hand still, the rest of your body still, make a fist with your right hand, squeeze it tightly, point it down to the ground as if your arm is getting pulled down. Feel the tension build up to your elbow, all the way up to your shoulder. Hold it one more moment, noticing what tense muscles feel like. Now very, very slowly, relax. Let your arm, your fingers open, your hand find a comfortable resting position in your lap. Your arm may feel heavy and warm as if you don't want to move it. Notice how different your right arm feels from your left. And leaving your right arm totally relaxed, we're going to tense the muscles of our stomach. Just listen first, because when I say, I want you to take in a deep breath and hold it, and while you do that, no one's looking, push out the muscles of your stomach and your chest. So get ready. Now take in a deep breath and hold it, pushing out your stomach, feeling the air, filling the whole cavity of your chest. Hold that and really, really slowly now let out the breath. As you do, your shoulders may drop your stomach become more concave. Let your breathing return to its natural resting state. Check to see that your right arm still feels nice and relaxed. And imagine if there was any tension left in that arm. You were just letting it flow out your fingertips, down from your shoulder and out into your lap. 
Once again, get ready to take in a deep breath. Get ready. Breathe in. Hold it, pushing out, filling your stomach and your chest areas. Hold that, feel the tension in those muscles of the gut. And then really slowly let out your breath. Let your breathing get even. Enjoy the feeling of relaxation now in your shoulders, in your stomach, your chest, your right arm. And while you're feeling that total relaxation in those parts of your body, in your mind's eye, I want you to envision that you are walking towards the lake right here at the resort. The rain has cooled everything off. The sky is blue with puffy white clouds. And you hear birds over the lake and the sound of somebody rowing and their oars splashing into the water. You have an ice-cold iced tea with you. You open the bottle, there's condensation on the outside, and you take a long drink as you're walking along the lake's edge. There's a picnic table there, you sit down, and the tea is sweet on your tongue. You look out at the lake. You can smell that someone at the campsites is grilling. There's that wonderful charcoal smell. It's not overwhelming, it's just off in the distance. You watch the rowers, the boatmen on the lake. The sun is beginning to dip over the mountain. It's leaving a beautiful reflection on the lake. You feel the breeze on your cheeks. It's cooled down quite a bit, but when the sun comes out, you can feel it kind of bake you, just in a comfortable way. And you sit there, sipping your iced tea, watching the birds, and enjoying the scenery, feeling totally relaxed. Now open your eyes. Everyone, everyone back? Everyone okay? So that's a combination of the be a little bit progressive muscle relaxation, you would do your whole body like that. There are exercises that literally separate all your muscle groups from your toes to the tip of your head. And the trick after you do it over and over and over again is you don't need to do the whole exercise to get your body relaxed. Your body learns what it feels like to be relaxed. I know when I'm tense, I will just catch myself, I'll say, uh, Shoulders, shoulders, down. And that's part of a progressive muscle relaxation. I'll just get them down and, and get them back to where they belong. And imagery is a, a tried and true strategy for relaxation. You can do it before you go to bed at night. It is a wonderful way to relax. I used all five of your senses and picked some image that's familiar. It's good to use for your relaxation imagery, something that works for you as a time of relaxation. I'll never forget doing this with a, a child I was working with in therapy, and he said, I am most relaxed on a roller coaster. I said, okay, not me, but if that's what relaxes you, we'll do that in the imagery. Go for it. Um, so it, it's personal, but it has to be very engaging of all the senses. So We've talked about all these different aspects of, of our sources of stress. We've looked at some Torah views. We've learned roots. Remember your situation and think now, what could I have done differently? Which one of these strategies might I have put into place? You don't have to answer me. That's your thought as you go off, happily relaxed, I hope, into dinner. Feel free to visit my website and my blog for more information. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.